Thank you for tuning in to the sermon webcast of Living Savior. We are one church serving in two locations, Asheville and Hendersonville, North Carolina. For more information, go to lsavior.org. It won't take you long if you scour the internet with a simple Google search to learn about the differences in people's opinions or beliefs about prayer. And I say opinions because not everything that everyone believes is rooted in truth. No surprise. But if you were to Google statistics about prayer, or how often people pray, or how people pray, or what is prayer supposed to do, you're going to get a diversity of answers. Percentages and pie charts and bar graphs. You're, you're going to see a lot of different beliefs about prayer not just about various different religions, but even just among Christians. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that, and we won't get into all of them here. But for all the reasons that there there is a lot of confusion about prayer, might it be that there are Christians who forget two core things? They forget what to pray, and they forget how to pray. Now, of all the questions that we can ask of the who, what, when, where, how, why, I would argue that those are probably two of the most important. In fact, they are. When you know what to pray, and when you know what, you also kind of cover the why and the who, by the way, as we'll see in a little bit as Jesus teaches us who to pray to, who we are in relation to God. And in those words, we also learn why. But when we know what to pray, and when we know how to approach our God in heaven when we pray, that covers just about everything. Now, that might seem like a pretty bold statement, but it's true. And so if you and I are to approach God in this important aspect of our Christian lives known as prayer, if you and I are not just going to be those people who say, I'll I'll pray for you, but actually do it, if you and I are going to be those people who find this great eternal benefit, even now in our spiritual lives, in our lives of prayer, then we would do well to pay attention to these words that I just read from Luke chapter 11, these words from Jesus, who gets our undivided attention on how we communicate to God who has already communicated to us through his word and expects us to pay close attention to it, especially so that we would know what to pray and how to pray. And in this way, we would be bold children of our Father in heaven. I invite you, if possible, to to grab a Bible. You can even hit pause for a second to grab a Bible and to have this open as we walk through these words from Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. Now, it happens often as you're looking at the ministry of Jesus where he goes off to a certain place to pray. And of all the things that we could say, there's a whole Bible study series wrapped up just into those words. We can say this. Jesus knew how important it was to be in communion with his Father in heaven. He knew how valuable it was to get away from the hectic lifestyle in this world as people are clamoring for his attention that he would go and only want God's attention and God would have his attention. You see, there's this orientation that happens in prayer and Jesus is demonstrating this. Yes, Jesus demonstrates a perfect prayer life on our behalf because none of us have one, But he's also showing us the way to live, to to get away, to go to a certain place to pray. And as he does with his disciples, his disciples ask a noble thing. Lord, teach us how to pray. 
After all, who of us can say, my prayer life is perfect? The disciples back then couldn't say it, and Jesus' followers today, you and me, can't say it. So he teaches them these words, and these words are the Lord's Prayer. Now, as we look at these words, you might think, well, there are some words that are missing, or it doesn't have that, what's called the doxology, or a word of praise about God at the end. Real briefly, if you look at Matthew chapter 6, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, there are other words, and so all of the words that we have in the Bible about this prayer come together to form the Lord's Prayer. And when Jesus first gives these words, we don't have that doxology at the end. Rather, those words of praise come from several other aspects of God's word in the New Testament to round out this prayer in a word of praise to God, which Christians have been using for a long time, even as you and I do today. So how does Jesus start it out? He says this, When you pray, say, Father. Not Lord God, who is in power, who might listen to you, but might not. Not Sovereign Lord, although he is, but he's really busy. No. Of all the relationships that we have with God, we have this relationship to him as our creator, as the one who controls, as the one who is sovereign, the one who knows all things. But of all the relationships we have, of all the ways to look at God, especially as we pray, the Son of God himself teaches us this. Call him Father. That's often intimidating for all of us, for good or bad reasons. Some of you have a bad relationship with your father, so the idea of calling your father in heaven father is hard. Some of us have great relationships with our father, and so to view God in that way seems like that's almost impossible. But for either good or bad reasons, God our father in heaven is better than that. He always listens and never loses his attention of us. He always cares and he perfectly provides. There's never a moment when he looks away and there's never a care or concern that he has missed on our behalf. And so we approach him in that way. Father, that's quite profound. He goes on, hallowed be your name. Now imagine somebody, I heard a story in fact yesterday as I was talking to my brother on the phone, he, he told a funny story about the, the relationship that co-workers, or excuse me, employers and employees have, where there's this funny story of an employee, a future employee goes in for a job interview, and as he's sitting there, he's talking to this person, the boss, who's interviewing him, and he suddenly turns the tables and he, he realizes, you need me more than I need you, and so actually I'm going to basically expect that you're going to give me the job, because I know that you need me more, and currently in this climate, that's true. For a lot of employers, you're struggling to find workers. But in that story, it highlights something, that the future employee is approaching the boss with his own reputation, with his own clout. And sometimes people approach God that way. God, I need. God, I want. And all the while, we forget how we are to keep holy God's name. That God is the one who alone is holy. That his name is the one who is to be proclaimed, that, that we only approach him on the basis of what he says. And that doesn't just mean that his name is holy, it means all of his reputation, including his word. So we pay attention to what God says, and we appeal to him on the basis of his holiness, not on our credit, on his word, not on our reputation. Father, hallowed be your name. He never lets us down and he never breaks his word. 
He never changes his tune and his reputation is always perfect and remains the same. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. When we ask for God's kingdom to come, we do want God to come again on the last day. And he promises to do so. But when we pray this prayer, we want God's kingdom to come and rule in the hearts of God's people here and now. Later in this account, he says that he will send the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that creates faith and rules in people's hearts. And we can see even now God's kingdom is coming into the hearts of God's people. It is reigning in our hearts even right here and now in this way as God's word controls and rules in our hearts for his good. But that means that we have to call into question all of the times when we want our kingdom to come. We have our intentions. We wish God would do things our way in our time. No, the most important thing is that God's kingdom would come. It outlasts every earthly kingdom and every worldly rule. In the end, we will see that there is one Lord, that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so we pray, not just for the future, but even here and now, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. If you pay attention to this, this petition, you see that it's right in the middle, but it is the only petition that mostly refers to earthly things. Give us today our daily bread. We ask for God to take care of us. He opens up his hand and satisfies the desires of every living thing. And since he is our father, we ask for him to, to help us with our abilities so that we can earn wages to provide for ourselves and to protect our family and to put food on the table for our families and for our children. Yes. But if you pay close attention, this is the only petition that mostly or entirely has to do with earthly things that should probably teach us about the ratio of other petitions that we typically pray. How often do we typically approach God in prayer and most of what we pray for is earthly things? Now, our Father in Heaven wants us to approach Him for anything. We're going to get to that in a little bit. But when we think about the amount of our prayers that have to do with physical things, what does that say about the motive of our prayer or, or the context of our heart? If most of what we want from God is earthly things, aren't we forgetting some of those other aspects too, like his kingdom and his will, his name? And so maybe it's important for us for a moment to consider that when we ask God for our daily bread, we are also, by logical extension, trusting in him not only for now, but because we can trust in him for now. It is because we can trust in him, in him for now because he has already taken care of our eternal future in heaven. That was made very poignant to me this past week. We were at a, a youth camp, a regional youth camp of over 350 other kids down in South Georgia. And each night we had reflection time. So Vicar Digman and I would sit with our boys and they would talk about their highs and lows and they would, they would also talk about maybe some of their concerns, the way that they learned about God's word that day, and then they would even pray. And when I was wishing all of them a good night, good night in their various bunk beds, one of them pulled me aside as I asked him, what was your favorite part about today? And he said, I learned more about how God loves me. 
Now, he could have said a lot of things that were blessings. The food was great. The fun was awesome. He could have talked about the, the lake blob or the water balloon launcher or the 300-foot slip and slide or the pool or bowling or all these other fun things. And there was plenty of that. But the most fun that he said he had, and it's only a gift of God's grace, was that he learned more about God's love for him. That's a proper perspective, a great ratio of recognizing earthly blessings in the context of eternal blessings. So we approach God and ask for daily bread. We trust him to carry out his divine supply chain for our good. Well, we keep that in perspective, even as we also pray for forgiveness for us and for others. Jesus goes on to say, Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. God alone has won forgiveness for us. We know that is our greatest need, for sin separates us from God, and we need God to be with us forever. So Jesus has won that forgiveness for us, removed that separation, and erased our sin and guilt through his life, death, and resurrection. And since he has, we approach God trusting in that and in that more than anything else. And since he has won forgiveness for us, then we also ask God to work in and through us that we would reflect this light of his love, to forgive those around us. No, it doesn't make what they did wrong if they've wronged us, or right if they've wronged us. It doesn't make that right. What it does mean is we take their sins to the Father. We know that he is the one who will take care of it. We don't hold this grudge against them, and we view others like Jesus views us. In fact, we view others the way Jesus already views them as well. As challenging as that is, we keep this orientation in perspective where we who are forgiven by God would ask for his forgiveness for others, as hard as that is, but as necessary as that is, we do. And lead us not into temptation. No, this does not put the presumption out there that, well, God might lead us into temptation. No, we're asking him to protect us even as we are tempted ourselves because we are not perfect within. In fact, we have a sinful nature. We ask God to watch over us and to guide us in the right way amid a world that is full of distractions. We ask him to help us when it comes to all of the temptations of the evil one himself who is out to create snares and traps and even desires to de devour our souls. Lead us not into temptation. So of all of these petitions, and you consider the, the Lord's prayers we have it now, he has a lot to teach us about what to pray. And it has been said that if you understand the Lord's prayer fully, there is no prayer that you could offer that will fall outside of the coverage of its umbrella. I'll say that again. If you understand every petition of the Lord's prayer fully, there is not a prayer that you can pray that will fall outside the umbrella of its coverage. A friend of mine who once said that, I think he's right. It's true. It covers just about everything. So when Jesus teaches us what to pray, this is not just a prayer that we kind of yawn through or we commit to memory so that we can speak it in a rote sort of way while we're getting distracted by other things around us or focusing on people in the pew to, to in front and to the left. No. There's so much packed into these words so that what we pray is covered. And so maybe if our prayers are to be properly informed, 
we would do best to understand these words even better. Even as we commit them to memory, we would focus deeply on each and every petition, every single word, so we know what to pray as our Savior has taught us. And that only helps us to, as, we, as Jesus guides our prayers in, in the right way, maybe a wrong, away from some of the needless prayers, but also it helps focus our attention on what our Father promises to give us. But Jesus knows that we don't only need to be informed on what to pray. We also need to know how we can approach our Father in heaven. So in what follows, Jesus does not give us 110 steps that we have to take before we can properly approach God. No, it all goes back to that very first word in the Lord's Prayer. Father, how we pray has everything to do with the way that we view our relationship with our Father in heaven. And so you, you view it like a friend. He, he tells this story about a friend going to someone, another friend in the middle of the night, with something like bread. All you need is bread because you have some travelers who are now your company, and you're out of food. There's this audacity. It's not just because on the basis of friendship, but because you audaciously approach your friend. In this crazy scenario, in the middle of the night, you wake them up just for bread? How many would, how many would just think, no, just call me tomorrow. You'll, you'll survive. No, but on the basis of the audacity, so too that with that same audacity, we approach our Father in heaven. It's not that we are to view him as the friend who might turn over to go back to sleep. No, Psalm 121 teaches us that God never slumbers. He will never sleep. He never takes a nap or hits the snooze button on us, especially when we are praying to him. So therefore, we are to approach him with audacity. That does not mean that we expect from God what he does not promise in his word. It does mean that we expect him to pay attention to us, to give to us what we need according to his will, because he does know what is best. Th that might be hard for us to consider, to approach God audaciously. But isn't that what we would see if we look at Old Testament examples? I mean, think of Think of Abraham approaching God about the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham is acting like he is in a market, an open market, bartering God down to a price. No, how about instead, you're asking for 20 bucks for this item? How about five bucks? And it's like he's bartering, hoping for some middle where he can walk away with some exchange. It seems crazy. And yet the Holy Spirit has seen fit to include that account and to tell us, even in Jesus' words, pray that way. Why? Because when you approach God audaciously, when you approach God that boldly, who are you trusting in? And who aren't you focusing upon? You see, if we are, are holding some of our cards close to the vest, we're not approaching God boldly, God knows very well that our attention is easily focused on our own work, our own ability to take care of it, and even maybe some speculation that our Father is listening and some speculation that he will follow through. And God knows how dangerous that is. And so what does he do? He says, come to me. Trust in me. I am your father. On the basis of your audacious pleading, will I not, will I not answer your prayers? Will I not give to you what you need? And, and who are we talking about here? 
We're not talking about a God who is worried about the bottom line. There's no bottom line. He controls everything. He can make food fall from heaven. He can make rain appear in the middle of a drought. He's proven that in the past. He can bring life from death. He's proven that too. So should we not go to him and trust in him? And that is what God wants in this relationship with him in how we pray, boldly as his children. So Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. This, these words have absolutely nothing to do with how someone comes to faith as a believer, as these words are often misused. These words are in the context of believers and children of God already praying to him. So what do we find from God? We find what he needs, or what, what we need most, what God wants to give us. This does not mean that whenever we come to God's door knocking, he's going to give us what we want. Who of us, as parents, will give our children everything that they want? That's a train wreck waiting to happen. So too our Father knows what we need, and that's all that he promises. You will receive. He doesn't say what we are going to receive, but we will receive something, and it will be for our eternal good. After all, it is our Father. I mean, imagine one of my kids coming and saying, Dad, when I turn 16, I need a Ferrari. Okay, I'll give it to you. Said no sane father or mother ever. That's not what they need. But maybe when a child turns 16, they do need some mode of tra transportation. That's really what they need. And so they will receive some form of that. Maybe it's a bus ticket. Maybe it's a bike. Maybe it's a broke down vehicle that they need to learn to fix up first. Or maybe it's the leftover van that's got 300,000 miles on it. Wh whatever it is, we know what our children need. So does our Father in heaven. So we will receive what we need. After all, he knows what's best. And Jesus even goes on further to talk to us more about this relationship. If, if we are imperfect, he says we are evil. And, and you might be jolted, and for good reason. We are evil. Compared to God, we are evil. Compared to God, we do not have that level of perfection. In fact, we don't have any good on our own. All good, any good, can only come from him. And so the comparison is between us and God. Imagine one of my children asking me for something. Jesus says, if they ask for a loaf of bread, or excuse me, a fish, will you give them a snake? Who would do that? Or if they ask for an egg, you'd give them a scorpion. Who would do that? Jesus is saying, right, if you even have that figured out, and you are nothing compared to God, I am nothing compared to our Father in heaven, then how much more will our Father in heaven, who is anything but evil, who is only perfect and loving, how much more will he give us what we need? So go to God with your questions about daily bread. Go to God with your concerns. Go to God with your cares and your worries. He is sitting there with an ear tuned directly in to your prayers. He does not have some angel functioning as some operator who sends you through some rigmarole before you can finally get to him. He does not have one of those robot machines which sends you on a 10-minute wild goose chase 
pressing number two, pressing number three for this, before he finally pays attention to your call. He is right there listening. Whether you're folding your hands and bowing your head, whether you're driving alone and talking to him as if he's in the passenger seat, whether you're lying in bed staring at the ceiling, whispering, maybe aloud, or maybe only in your heart. Your father is listening, and he's your father, and he knows what best to give you. And so you know what to pray for, and you know how to approach him. And every single time, and every single way you do, he is listening. So be steeped in God's word, so you better know what to pray for. And then when you know that God is speaking to you through his word, then you will also know and believe that you can audaciously and boldly pray to him, your Father in heaven, who will listen to you and give you what is best now and forever. And with that, we can then have bold prayer lives and be shocked by the way that God blesses us with everything that we need now and forever. Thank you.